Focus on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, and for fans of football, it's been quite a week as England's Lionesses finally managed to struggle their way into the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Underdogs Nigeria were really the far better side, and the winning result was something of a surprise. But the headlines were dominated by Lauren James, who was sent off following a VAR review for stamping on Michelle Alozi's back in the 87th minute. The game ended nil-nil with the Lionesses winning 4-2 on penalties. Talking after the game, England manager Serena Wiegman said of James, she would never want to hurt someone. She's the sweetest person I know. It was late in the game, so players get a little tired. She's inexperienced on this stage and in a split second lost her emotions. It isn't something she did on purpose. She apologised and felt really bad. Lauren James has limited comments on her Instagram account to stem the backlash following her Women's World Cup sending off. It left Serena Wigman's Lionesses hanging on with just 10 players through extra time, but ultimately James's moment of madness didn't cost England as they prevailed on those nail-biting penalties. Well, all this talk of sport has inspired me to want to talk about sport tonight. But don't worry, if you're not too interested in football specifically or sport generally, the theme is just an opportunity to reflect on some more important matters. Tonight, I want to talk about the Jesus who doesn't give us a red card despite our fragilities and failures. We are wanted by him. And then I'll describe what I think is one of the greatest football shots in history, and it was a senior citizen who took the shot. I'd like to reflect on the power of encouragement as we talk about how the crowds, the supporters, can cheer their heroes on and how we can do that with each other. So stay with me here on Lucas on Life on Premier Christian Radio. Here's Christine DeMarco. There were just 10 seconds left in the game, a dreary nil-nil draw. Sensing that victory was still possible, the crowd tensed as my friend John carefully placed the football to take the corner. The crowd hushed, and I realised that I was unmarked, at least for the moment. The ball arched towards the penalty area, towards me, too low for a header. Throwing caution to the wind, I took a volley shot. The ball cannoned into the back of the net. We'd won. The team surrounded me, all hugs and backslapping, and then the deafening roar of the crowd woke me up. My victory in the beautiful game was just a beautiful dream. My real accomplishments as a schoolboy soccer player were limited, as in none. And I was also useless at cricket because when people throw hard objects at me at speed, I tend to scream and run away. Abandoning the wicket mid-bowl is not a good tactic. I'm rubbish at golf. Just hitting the ball in any direction is an accomplishment. I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. And in one especially embarrassing school football match, I was assigned the defensive position of right back. Within minutes of the game starting, I was up at the front trying to play like a centre-forward. The games teacher actually halted the match to remonstrate with me with an expletive riddled tirade. Crimson face, my teammates sniggering, I shuffled back to where I belonged. But the most excruciating time for me at school was when teams were being picked. 
Two irritatingly athletic captains survey the lineup of available players, all of whom are quite desperate to be selected early in the awful process. The best performers are snapped up quickly, the ranks thin out, and then there are just four, just three, just two, and then just one was left waiting to be picked. That would be me. Wrinkling his nose with a look of disdain, usually reserved for the last turkey in the shop, the forlorn captain shrugs his shoulders. All right, I suppose we'll take Lucas then. My status as the unwanted, least talented footballer in the class was thereby confirmed. Sometimes I feel a similar sense of shame when I am around fellow Christian leaders. Surely they all pray more, believe more, hear the whispers of God more than I do. When they talk about their excitement about being with Jesus forever, I worry about the fact that unless he returns in my lifetime, I will have to die first in order to make that meeting. And then how will it be when I finally see him face to face? When I approach him, will his face break into a smile, his arms wide open in welcome? Great to see you, he cries. I run towards him and suddenly his face falls. Sorry, Jeff, he says. I was talking to the person behind you. Perhaps you feel the same, but we need not fear because our Jesus is the master of inclusion. He lunched with people like tax collector Zacchaeus, a social pariah who'd been red-carded, a lackey to his Roman paymasters. Loudmouthed Peter and doubt-plagued Thomas were chosen as well. On the Jesus team, the weak, the weary, the losers are invited by grace. We're not sent off, we're sent out with a coach who doesn't just offer us winning tactics, but promises to apprentice us, shape us, empower us. With him, we win because he already has. Today, tonight, let's know this. In Christ, we are wanted. It was a beautiful shot the kind of heavenly volley that sends football commentators into verbal overdrive, a punt to launch a brace of slow-motion action replays. The ball rolled gently towards the player, who eyed it nervously at first. Tension crackled in the crowd. Suddenly, as if anointed by genius, the player stepped back on their right heel and performed a perfect kick. Hands outstretched airplane-like, poise and balance perfect, foot connected perfectly with leather, with a deep, solid thud, scooping it up in a bend-it-like Beckham power drive. It was surely sheer soccer poetry. Somewhere in the distance, a huge crowd rose to their feet as one and gave a deafening cheer. The player, lost in the moment, was oblivious to their roar of approval. The minister looked on staggered. This was most unexpected because this perfect kick was not performed in a stadium or a park, but in the main meeting hall of a church in Mid Wales. It was late Sunday evening when it happened. Most of the congregation were enjoying that chatty, copper-in-hand bonhomie, the warm afterglow ritual that caps 10,000 Sunday evening services. The minister watched, feeling the pleasurable tired ache that comes when the sun sets on yet another busy Sunday, enjoying the clinking sound of China and the relaxed atmosphere. The service that had just concluded had been a happy affair. 
there'd been a refreshing cocktail of laughter and tears and a challenge given that we should think about our faith and not just keep doing the same old things simply because, well, that's what we do. Grace was in the air. One of the children had been playing with the ball when it happened. The football rolled across the fading carpet to Josie, a sprightly lady in her mid-seventies, faithful to God and to this church for the past 55 years. Now, what would she do? Perhaps a gentle rebuke about the evils of soccer playing in church buildings? Josie, she was the player. She eyed the ball hungrily, and for a few seconds, she was 16 years old again and a member of the local girls' soccer team. She had loved the game dearly. Perhaps she was a local star. And then, as she put it, she got saved. Becoming a Christian, she found that fraternizing with the world was not encouraged, and sadly, back then, sports were considered worldly. To continue on the team would mean violating the prohibitionist doctrine of separation that was preached at the time. And so, Josie hung up her soccer boots for the last time, and she had not kicked a ball for over half a century. There was no angst. She was not bitter about her loss. She turned her back on the game and threw all of her energies into the life of the church. And then, that late Sunday night ball appeared before her. As Josie said later, Something from the past rose up within me, so she performed a masterful kick. The minister's mouth fell open, first with amazement and then admiration. I realize now that a lot of things that we were told were sin, well, they weren't really, she explained later with a warm smile. And as I heard her story, I wondered about countless Christians that I still meet for whom faith has been less than liberating. Sometimes I bump into good, kind, sincere believers who are passionately committed to a message of freedom, but who have been squeezed into the painful corsets of fear by second-hand, unthinking dogma. They are the ones who believe in joy, but are nervous of laughter. It is they who occasionally doubt, as all humans do, but feel like they would be committing a Judas-like act of betrayal if they admitted their struggles in faith. They are those for whom everything in life has to be productive efficient and spiritually significant. They have left spontaneity and play and simple down-to-earth fun like discarded toys of their childhood, rejected now for a stern, rigid, almost obsessive discipleship. They need to kick a ball, build a sandcastle, laugh out loud, face their uncertainties, giggle on a Sunday morning. I wonder if perhaps heaven is waiting for the locked-up ones to get a bit more of a life. And when they take those small steps of freedom, heaven notices, and somewhere in the distance, a huge crowd rises to their feet as one and gives a deafening cheer. The man fiddled with his impossibly tight tie. His Sunday morning church attire was slowly strangling him. For a long moment, he stood silent and then at last spoke to me without actually looking at me. His unsmiling face chilled words that should have been warm. I need to thank you for your ministry, Jeff, he whispered hesitantly, apparently studying a fascinating object that hovered three feet above my head. He continued, but then we give all the glory to the Lord, don't we? I wouldn't want you to get proud. I thanked him 
and so wanted to deliver him from his constricting tie and of his hesitancy to bring encouragement. I wanted him to know that Christian leaders are more likely to succumb to despair rather than to conceit, but he quickly fled, leaving me with a sad realization. In some churches, there's a famine of encouragement. Faithful, hard-working souls live in the suffocating atmosphere that pervades when appreciation is rare. Working hard in the hope of a final well done that will come when all is said and done, they live shriveled lives in the meantime. Starved of words that might spur them on, they hobble on. The assumption is that serving God is reward enough, which is quite wrong, because the God we serve urges us to encourage one another. All this talk of sport this week reminds me that encouragement transforms, energizes, and empowers. I was thinking about the glorious Olympics and Paralympics that were repeatedly demonstrating the power of encouragement when they were held in London back in 2012. The crowd was the genuine all-rounder of the Olympic Games, remarkably making a huge impact at every event. Commentators chattered about the home advantage or the fifth man in the boat, as they called it, describing the crowd. Athletes looked wide-eyed and some openly sobbed as the crowd roared. The deafening choruses of support acted like adrenaline, urging spent muscles and weary hearts onto greater exploits. A German journalist said that the London crowd deserved gold medal. Sprinter Marlon Devonish in an anti-doping campaign, announced that the crowd was his only drug. So why was the crowd the X factor that helped many to medal glory? More than a wall of noise, surely the crowd met the athlete's primal need that we all share, the need to be noticed, to be approved of. As children, we crave the eye and the encouraging words of a parent as we wobble on our bikes, bring home the chaotic painting, or use a toilet successfully. And encouragement is the fuel that can lift our heads through our darker days when the valley is filled with shadows. This was poignantly demonstrated at another three-day event, a triathlon of sorts involving incredible physical stamina, steely mental fortitude, and emotional staying power. The demands were gargantuan, and so a team huddled together the night before the event, and their prospects weren't looking good because they were exhausted before they started. And then, the next day, the home crowd turned hostile. They switched allegiance, dumped their national hopeful, and cheered for a champion from another land instead. Their chant was an ominous betrayal. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify that man. And so, before that happened on Transfiguration Mountain, the voice of the greatest encourager spoke loud and clear, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That voice had spoken up before, just before another battle, this one for forty days and nights. This is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. Spurred on by that encouragement, Jesus lived. Urged on by that familiar encouraging voice, Jesus went to his death. And so, let's go ahead, make someone's day, catch them doing something right, search out the soul who is usually taken for granted, thank the ticket collector on the train, smile at the traffic warden, write a note to that Sunday school teacher who has told the big story to countless squirming six-year-olds for decades. Some of them are in their thirties now, 
but few have come back to thank her, win a gold medal as an encourager, and know how to receive encouragement too. Some Christians go into panic mode when they're confronted with warm appreciation. A lady approached a minister and thanked him for his sermon, which sent him into a spluttering disclaimer with much pointing to the sky. Don't thank me, madam. No, please, the Lord did it. Give him the glory. Her reply was insightful, if not terribly encouraging. Well, actually, it wasn't that good. Well, that told him. See you next week. Lucas on Life.